Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Please listen with care. G'day. I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week on Crime Insiders Detectives, a former New South Wales detective who took on some of the country's most feared bikies. We started investigating them and where that led, it just led into a whole world of trouble for everybody. For them, for me, for everyone. Craig Semple, is a 25-year veteran of the New South Wales Police Force. He retired in 2013 at the rank of Detective Sergeant. Much of Craig's career was involved in high-risk environments, including drug investigations, homicide, and the taking down of outlaw motorcycle gangs. Some of the stories you'll hear from Craig today are just extraordinary. His honesty, candor, and emotional vulnerability goes beyond what we expect from our guests. It shows the type of character he is now and was in the force. Craig's career takes some incredible turns, which you'll hear. But to start, we'll head back to a case that set off a series of high-intensity events and transformed Craig's life, both for better and for worse. Working weekends was a an unusual occurrence for me. It was normally Monday to Friday. And, um, you know, sometimes your, your paperwork gets that piled up. The only way to get on top of it is coming in on a weekend when the, the phones are quiet. And so that's the only reason I was in there that day, as fate turns out. It was down at um, a place called Yamba. A call came over the radio and it sounded pretty innocuous. Like, oh, so I was about to turn the speaker off because it was interrupting my thoughts with the work I was doing. And one of those things you develop as a cop is a, an instinct, a sixth sense for things where that there's something's not right. So I traveled down to that job. I didn't really need to be there. They weren't calling for detectives. I just had a feeling something wasn't right with it. There was one other uh, uniformed bloke waiting for me to turn up. He had a couple of blokes with him that looked like suspects to me. So um, they didn't really check on the, on the victim in there. So we didn't know whether he was alive or dead. So I, I basically took it upon myself to, um, to get in that house. I, I just had two jobs I had to do. One of those jobs was... Um, to get in and make sure no one needed any medical help and the other job was to get in there and clear that house of danger and make it safe for the cops that I'd, I'd call in after me. So so I went, in, I went around the back of the house, the front door was locked and pulled my gun out. Like I had done many times before, uh, I went through a process, if I had the time to do it before I went into a dangerous situation, I'd sort of psych myself up before before I entered just to get get the adrenal system going and, and fire myself up. So I went through a process of like just saying to myself, mate, as soon as you go through that door, 
if you're confronted with a threat, do not hesitate to pull the trigger because if you hesitate, you're dead. So basically what happened was I went through that house and, I, and I'm not going to get into the details of how horrific the scene was, but it was pretty graphic. And the, the house was a crime scene from the back door to the front door. So I went through and I cleared that house at gunpoint room by room. Basically when I got to the last room of the house, which is where the victim was, um, worst of the crime scene, put, put simply, my, my system, I was just so flooded with adrenaline that adrenaline serves to really sharpen all your sensory experiences. So, you know, for me, looking back in hindsight, pumped on adrenaline, colours become brighter, sense of hearing, touch, smell, even the things I could taste in the air that in, in that house, they become really acute and, and it sort of burn in deep all those experiences and serve to scramble the way my brain processed everything that happened in that house that day, all the things, that I, all those sensory experiences. So that's what ended up causing... Like what I, what I see is a clearly the defining point with PTSD for me at, at that point in time. So it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty horrific scene. But when it comes to the scale of horror that it, the things I'd seen in the cops, it, it wasn't up there with the worst. It was more the state that I was in, the state of arousal that I was in at the time I was exposed to it, which caused the problems. And this is the important part about education for cops out there: is if you're not educated, how are you going to know? So that's an important part. Yes, and and so you you then become the um, the officer in charge of that homicide investigation. So you're on scene, and uh, like you say, it was a, a pretty horrendous scene. Somebody you know shot with a at close range with a shotgun. We can we can imagine the uh, we can imagine the scene. Um, and you know, the first twenty four, particularly twenty four forty eight hours of an investigation like that. It's how does that look moving forward from that point? What is how does that process open up and roll forward? So the very first thing for me is crime scene preservation, delegating that task to the uniform bloke that was there and making sure that he had it taped off and, and made sure he kept logs and all those sort of things, make sure we, we restricted who went in and out. The two blokes who, uh, who actually came ac- across the victim who were friends with him, um, we had to take them in, keep them separated, um, do separate interviews with them so they couldn't cross contaminate each other's stories. We had forensic police come in and do gunshot residue tests on their on their hands and clothing just to make sure that they um because these guys were pretty soon dismissed as as suspects and they were, they were then witnesses so but we had to uh, definitively write them off as far as 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 suspects and do all that sort of work so there's a lot of work went in just that side of it and then one of the victim's flatmates that he was living with in that house he had disappeared and so had the victim's car and so we were looking at him straight away as a suspect and, oh, look, we, we did some background checks and found that he, he also lived on a yacht somewhere down on the Clarence River. So, you know, put surveillance on that yacht, kept an eye on it overnight. Uh, we went and knocked on plenty of doors and searched a lot of houses looking for, for, the, for this bloke who, who we suspected might have been involved. Had also the, the difficult task of notifying family. You know, part doing death messages and that sort of thing is probably the one up there with some of the worst things you can do as a cop. Um, so that was a pretty tough thing too, walking the family through what had happened and where we're going with it as well. But later that afternoon of the, of the when we got notified and came across the crime scene, I had forensic investigators in there, and and it didn't take long to to work out how our victim had died. I mean, I'd I'd seen the extent of the injuries, and uh, and I but they were that extensive um, that. I couldn't work out what it could have possibly been, whether it was an axe, gun, or whatever. Um, but they were able to pretty 
soon they were able to determine that that it was a firearm and the firearm wasn't in the house. So then we had security issues. We got suspect out on, on the loose in a suspected stolen car with a with a shotgun. So then it's all, you know, cops have got to be careful if they come across them. There's, there's real issues with survival there. So, you know, there was a lot, that's a lot of stuff that's going on, right? And then, um, and then the next day when I finally got home, uh, the next night, so it was, um, nearly 48 hours later, um, that, that, that suspect actually walked into, um, into a pub at McLean. And so we got the cops down there and arrested him. And when the forensic guys went through the house, they actually found a sawn off shotgun, uh, stock in the bedroom cupboard of, of this guy that we suspected of doing it, his flatmate, along with bloodstained clothing and a whole lot of other very incriminating evidence. We thought he's pretty good for it. Got the forensic guys to check this bloke over and, and they just like, just, they couldn't explain it. They said, mate, we just don't think this bloke's done it. He just hasn't got enough on him. Um, even if he had a shower, he should have, given the crime scene, he should have something. Like even like shotgun residue and all all that type of thing, like the whole nine yards. Well, yeah, I mean, shotgun residue, the gun residue doesn't, um, doesn't last a long time, unfortunately. Like you've only got a real small window before, um, that, that sort of dissipates and you, you can't get it within 24 hours. You've got to have that sorted, but still there should have been blood and other things on him. Uh, and he had, he clearly hadn't had a shower. He's really untidy. And I think I've been bulldozing ahead, just wanting this thing cleared up. And, um, and I missed a few things and it was actually one of the youngest detectives in our office actually said to me, do you mind if I go down and have a crack? And I said, mate, knock yourself out. And um, he went down and had a chat with him. And, and it turned out this this guy that we had in our target for the murder, he'd actually been loaded up by another bloke who'd been with him that night. And um, after he'd committed the murder, he went and got this bloke and kidnapped him at gunpoint for, for another two days. And how he survived, I don't know, because he was the only eyewitness. We probably would have had minimal idea about this this other guy. And so he kept him kidnapped for a while and then, then eventually released him. Then we arrested him and then eventually he told us about what had actually happened. And uh, we still don't know the motive. We've got no idea why he did he, he committed the murder on, on, on this bloke. But um, but we yeah, after a month of really, really hard work, and, and I mean really hard work, we had phones tapped and all sorts of stuff, uh, we eventually got this bloke and, and charged him with a murder. And, and um, you know, he's a suspect for another homicide as well. And he's a bad character. But yeah, we got him in handcuffs. You get home that evening after a couple of days to your wife. Uh, you've got three young boys, I think, um, to grab a quick bite to eat with your wife. And it's just something I wanted to sort of put the microscope on just for a moment because you're not a robot. You can't just step through the front door of the house and pretend that this hasn't happened. And how do those two worlds sort of coexist with, you know, Craig, the homicide detective versus the, the, the husband and the dad to these three young boys. That's, that's, how, how does that work? Well, in my case, it didn't put simply, it was an existence and that was it. It was, uh, I, I just learned and, and everyone's different. So I don't want to talk to generally sure. to cover every other cop that's out there because some people manage it really well. It depends a lot on your relationship, I think. And, um, it takes two people to make a relationship work. Sometimes it, it takes two to, to, to not make it work too. But I, I, I always had a, a real reluctance to share a lot of, or pretty much anything that I did at work within my home environment. My home was my sanctuary and, and I looked at it as my place to, to take refuge in after dealing with all that stuff. It was the place where I could leave it all behind and just walk through my door. And But it was just, um, 
it wasn't until years later when I was doing a lot of reflection on it, it was uh, that transitioning between being plugged in the adrenaline socket of law enforcement at that top end, you know, running homicides and, and bikey gang jobs and stuff. Then you got to come home and try to decompress in a very short space of time and, and get used to all the domestic type situations that you face with at home. And sometimes I'd be, I'd come home and I was so wired from the work I've been doing, I'd just have to tell the kids to leave me alone. They'd be excited to see me when I came, came home through the door, but I just have to tell them, mate, boys, just give me some space for for a while because oh, like I was just too agitated. Um, and also the other side of it too, and, and there's probably plenty of cops that experience this, is like being at the pointy end of a homicide investigation and you're just making decisions, bang, bang, bang. It's just like nonstop. Something comes in, decisive, make a decision. And you're focusing on things that sometimes are life and death. And then you come home and my wife might have asked me some what I, I saw, she didn't, she didn't see it as a mundane question, but I would see it as a mundane question about a bill that had to get paid or something yeah. to do with the kids' school report. Have you the rubbish thinking, out? Or, yeah. What, yeah. <laughs> I'll be thinking, what are you, do you think, I, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, and so, so that causes lots of problems as you can imagine, because she doesn't understand that. And, and a lot of, a lot of partners of, of cops probably wouldn't. So I, I think that's why, um, I think it's so important that not only do, do cops get really good training about how the job affects them over time, but also families get that training as well. They know how to react and what's going on. But um, I think it was just a protective factor for me. I just like to you know, protect my house, protect myself from having to sully my house with all that carnage that I was dealing with every day. But unfortunately, I think it was also because um, like years later, my wife and I divorced. And one of the catalysts for that is is that because I never shared, she didn't really understand the level of the things I was doing. And then not that it would excuse a lot, but you know, I spent most of my time when I wasn't at work, I'd go and have after work drinks with my workmates a lot because that's where I truly felt that I was most understood. The downside of that is that not that it might've made a great deal of difference, but I think if our partners understand at least like what's actually going on, what we're exposed to, it might also help understand some of our behaviors as well, I think. If we go forward, Craig, from, you know, you, the, the, the dust settles on the homicide case from Coffs Harbour, we're getting towards um, end of the year 2003 and there's a um, a detective's Christmas party at the old Coffs Hotel, which got a bit colourful, to put it <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, mm. There's cop-friendly um, hotels and there's, there's those that aren't. And so you can go into a place, you can have a couple of beers and relax and that's what you were doing and then um, everything suddenly turned pear-shaped. Can you fill in the gaps for us there? Yeah, well, it was only a couple of days after we'd solved that murder. It was just at one time of the year where we had an opportunity just to wind down, put our feet up and, and really enjoy a few beers together and and chill out. So, um, yeah, we were at our cop-friendly pub and sitting in an outdoor area. And we'd uh, been enjoying some beers and, and seafood and all those sort of things. And it was daylight savings, beautiful in Coffs Harbour that time of year. And, and I remember... The publican told us that, that he was going to shut that outdoor area soon to, to move inside. And so an offsider of mine from Grafton and I, we went into the, the into the bar. We're looking for somewhere to set set up, bring everyone into. We didn't know at the time, and, and a lot of what I'm going to share with you now is from footage from inside the pub, you know, CCTV footage and witness statements from other people who were there. At, at the time, we had our backs turned and this bloke walks in from the other bar and he's a big muscle-bound gym-type bloke 
big neck tattoo and all that sort of thing, heavy gold chains. But he, he came in from behind and he, and he put the shoulder into my mate and uh, knocked him off balance. But that, we didn't even realize it was deliberate. We thought it was an accident. And, and my mate just like apologized to him and then walked off and to get some drinks. And it, well, he walked off and then this bloke just yells out something pretty brutal towards him. He doesn't hear it, but I did. And I thought, what's going on here? So I, I leaned down and I said, mate, all he did was apologize. And with that, just got massively king hit, came out of nowhere, got me in the jaw. I was no um, wilting flower, but I didn't also think myself much of a, a fighter. It wasn't my go. And I think he was just surprised I didn't go down. And um, and so I started moving. I put my dukes up and started moving towards him. And next thing you know, I was only about two meters from him and point blank, he just wound up with this empty beer glass he brought in and pegged it straight at my face. Like it was heading straight for my eyes and... Mate, even now, I don't, for the life of me, especially considering I'd had, you know, a fair few beers under my belt, how I got my arm up was purely reflexive and the glass smashed on my arm before it got to my eyes. It was all such a blur, but the security ran over and jumped all over him and he was, apparently, according to witnesses, he was putting a set of metal knuckle dusters on his fingers ready to go. So it was going to get messy. But I didn't see that and um, I was just looking at him and, and I got dragged a different direction. I'm being tended to out of, in, in the bar that I was at. Um, they were just trying to stop my arm bleeding. Um, the security took him out the other bar, but there was five other bikies out there. They got wind of our detective's Christmas party sometime before. The whole thing was organised. They brought bikies up from Queensland. They brought one up from uh, South Australia, Sydney. They brought and, and teamed up with a couple of our blokes. And um, they got a maxi taxi to the pub, got the bloke the to park the taxi in the back laneway behind our hotel, gave him 50 bucks, said, mate, wait here. What we're going to do is not going to take very long. When I'd been glassed, they took him back out. He rejoined his mates. They went out through another door, circled back around the pub, came into our outdoor dining area, and they just went through it like a tornado. No one outside was expecting anything. They didn't know what had happened inside. And so they started throwing punches and, and you know, chairs and tables are flying everywhere and and one of my mates got knocked out and then they laid a slipper into his head while he was unconscious. So that was a pretty low act. But, you know, I'm sitting in, inside the bar and I, sit, I hear all the shouting outside and I saw shadows through the frosted glass doors and I thought, what's going on here? So I, I pushed the detective's wife who was looking after my arm. I just pushed her out of the way and I, I ran outside. And once I got out the doors, I just looked up and down the street and I was shocked into a moment of inaction. I was just looking at it. There were pitch fights up and down the street between, you know, off-duty cops and, and all these bikies. And, and and still, I didn't know that they were bikie gang members at that point. They, they were members of the Finks, the Finks motorcycle gang? They, 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 were, they were Finks outlaw motorcycle gang members. So it was really, um, apart from the fact it came out of the blue, it was the why was part of the shock, I think, with the whole thing as well. So once I uh, realized, hang on a minute, mate, you've got to get in there. So... So I was in, in the, the fights as well. And then the you know, uniform cops turn up and we managed to get all of them arrested that night, which is pretty incredible. Uh, they Half of them got in the taxi and were, were trying to get out of there, but they got bailed up by a couple of um, off-duty detectives and we got them all in the bin. But um, it was a real turning point for me in my career because I'd had occasional dealings with bikies, but not a real personal level. They really hadn't caused me any grief. and uh, And all of a sudden... These guys had just crossed a line you just do not cross. What happens at work and in the professional side of, you know, the, you know, bikies being our opposition and all that, 
you keep it there. When you go cops when they're off duty with their wives and families, that's a line you do not cross. And so they crossed it and, um, yeah. There's a sort of, you know, dealing with these type of individuals, uh, you know, gangs and what have you, they're the same the world over, mate, and, and there's a begrudging respect for want of a better term, I suppose, that goes each way. And something like this just crosses over that, you know, attacking coppers off duty in the presence of wives and girlfriends. That's, I mean, that just throws that code out the window. And am I right in saying that those that were involved, yourself and others, were going, okay, we need to gather forces and and you would have got support throughout New South Wales Special Operations Group, everybody else, we need to really go in there and wave the flag and get this sorted. But that was the total opposite reaction than what you got from senior management who basically said, no, we're not, we're not going to do anything. Is it, am I reading that right? Mm. It was uh, a major disappointment. Like it, it was one thing for these bikies to cross the line, but you know, at the end of the day, we're cops. And if, if you want to cross that line, you, you're just going to have to deal with the consequences. And for bikies, that should be basically shut down. You run out of town you never come back. We'll shut your business. We shut everything. And that's what we expected to happen. And it was full acceptance, really, even at senior management level. I mean, originally when they heard about it, I got no doubt senior managers thought, oh God, boys have been out on the on the piss and they've got themselves in a blue and what, what have we got to clean up here? But then when they actually looked at all the CCTV footage and all the witness statements and everything came in, they saw it was clearly organized. It was nothing to do with us. It was a clearly organized attack. And I remember we had a detective's lunch about a week later and the way I understood it was that we were going to be getting our heads together and working out what our retaliation would be. And when I say retaliation, I don't mean it that we're just going out there recklessly after revenge. It was just like, we got to take back control here. We don't let them dictate terms. It's just like people need to learn. You want to cross that line, there's going to be a price to pay. So we went to that meeting and then the senior managers I spoke to just said, no, We'll just let the dust settle, you know, we'll let the court processes take their their normal journey through the court. And I was absolutely horrified. You know, I still remember the day when it all happened that we had these discussions and I was so angry with my boss that he actually made that decision. And I think that just compounded the anger that I'd already felt towards the bikies. And there was, as a result of that, I think because there was no opportunity for us to reassert control, um, it was a real defining turning point in my mental health for that. Like it, I already had onset of nightmares from from the, that murder at McLean or Yambar. And, but then, you know, I had this deep simmering anger because I had whatever action I thought we needed to take with these bikies, I was left unsatisfied. And I'd lay awake at night just dwelling on it and thinking over it. And then before long, you know, I'd start fantasizing about whatever revenge we could get and then that would start you know moving into planning my own revenge which most of the things I was thinking about at night time was stuff that would like let me into straight into jail it was like things that you just couldn't do and I had no intention intention of carrying any of those plans but it was the only way I felt any relief from from that anger was just thinking of the things I could do but it was really toxic. It was really poisonous. It really affected my sleep. Um, and, and then from there on in too, because these guys had crossed that line, you start to wonder what else could they possibly do? And, and then your house doesn't feel safe and, you know, noises at night, you think, you know, who, who's this? Um, so it was really hard to settle. Uh, so I had a real problem with hypervigilance from, from those years on as well. 
And I think at one point there, uh, off duty, you walked into a, a known gang pub, just walked in to confront these guys. And you probably look back at that now, mate, shaking your head, oh. going, goodness me, what was I thinking? And, mate, uh, I, I was truly unhinged. <laughs> I was really unraveling really yeah, fast. Totally. I, yeah, I, like yeah. I had the PTSD from the, from the murder, like back to back with it, with this stuff. And I wasn't sleeping. And I just, I was just so angry. It was unbelievable how it was filtering into my life. And I, yeah, it was one night. I was off duty and, and, and this particular bikey gang had, some of their members had been standing over some young probationary constables who we just received at the police station and, and scared the life out of them so much so that they didn't want to even make statements about it or anything. It was terrifying for them. So, you know, I, I just saw these bikies in this pub one night, they're all in their colors. There's, there's at least a dozen of them. All the bikes were lined up out the front and uh, I didn't even think it was just like straight in, picked out the sergeant arms, mate, let's go. And the place went in a meltdown. It was just a bit. I think the only reason I didn't get the, the hiding I probably probably could have cop was the fact that these guys just thought this bloke mad and and so I went home and and um and it really it was probably uh, the first clear warning sign I knew I was in trouble because that sort of re- reckless behaviour was so out of character for me and so it was there was the first time I actually reached out to a psychologist through our EAP and and I remember I went to that appointment and and I told him I was losing it and uh, but it was one of those things where. Sometimes you, if you feel like you go to a, to a, a counsellor or a therapist and, and you don't feel like they're going to get you, for me, I just thought this is not going to work. So I didn't go back, which was unfortunate because of what happened years later down the track. But it was like the starters gun had just gone off with bikies for me. I, you know, for all those those first 15 years of my career, I hadn't had a lot to do with them. But from the moment of that attack, all I did for the next 10 years was live and breathe bikie gangs. So it was only... Well, it was only after that attack, probably four or five months later, I, I found myself running a, a big investigation into a, sh- a bikey shooting up up our way. It was like an assassination from senior members of one bikey gang on one of the other high-ranking members, and that involved phone taps and stuff, and, and I was living and breathing those bikies. That was the outcast. You know, I got a real, just listening to their phone calls and listening to the way they operate gave me a real insight in the politics and the way they work, the power struggles, and... You know, it was a big job. We had people in witness protection and all sorts of stuff while we're running that job. And it just went from one bikey job to another all the way through the, the end of my career. 2009, there's a case you're involved in, Strike Force Wellham. There'll be some that will have some familiarity with this. It's the Danny Wicks uh, drug trafficking case. Now, Danny Wicks, um, first grade footballer for Newcastle Knights uh, NRL team, high profile. This is a case that you're involved in um, for some time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this one, Craig? Yeah, yeah. At that time, I, I'd transferred from Grafton. I'd taken up a post as a detective sergeant leading a, a target action group. So basically, target action groups are, I don't know what you describe them as, like a flying squad or a anti-theft type squad where we do a lot of drug work and, and um, basically target any of the, the commands, uh, emerging crime problems. And... Uh, Drug work was a huge part of it. I had a team at, at, at Coffs Harbour and also another team at Grafton and they'd started to get hold of a, a fair bit of information through informants that that there was this uh, bit of a syndicate working between Newcastle and, and Grafton, the North Coast, dealing out cocaine and ecstasy and amphetamines and stuff like that. And so we worked the job up and uh, one of the main suspects was Danny and his brother and some other associates, family members as well. And, and, um, I don't know where it all started. I mean, we come into it obviously when when this syndicate was well and truly established. But there was an organised crime figure down here, Macedonian organised crime figure that had uh, somehow come in contact with Danny, and 
and became his supplier. And then Danny was transferring those drugs up to the North Coast and also supplying other teammates within the Newcastle Knights as well. And Danny at that time thought he was a bit of a gangster and, and a high flyer in those sort of circles. But um, yeah, the further we'd sort of dug into it, the bigger it got. We started investigating things like performance and enhancing drugs and, and stuff like that as well. We had to bring in some detectives from some of the crime squads down here in Newcastle to join us. And, and uh, so we worked it up. We worked that one for about six, seven months, I think, at, at, at that investigation point with the phones tapped and everything. Obviously a lot longer getting it off the ground, but um, we had to be really careful of, about uh, with the information with this because because of the high profile of, of the targets and, and where we're living and working, they're country towns. It doesn't take much for, for word to start spreading around if something gets out. Basically, um, Matt and I, my, my offsider with that one, we uh, we worked from my rumpus room in my house. Like We took ourselves offline, couldn't even work from the police station in the initial stages of it because we just didn't want anyone knowing what we were doing. So it was only the two of us and our commanders that knew what was going on. So we had to keep it pretty secret and um, and that's why it stayed all the way through. And so we got some phones tapped and uh, basically it, it led us into a, it, it just started with some low level drug dealing. Where it led from there, it sort of blew out quite a bit. It sort of gave me a real good insight into into some of the problems associated with with drug use, drug dealing and, and, and criminal associations at elite levels of professional sport. A lot of the stuff I listened to there's a lot of stuff that I just can't share, but it really opened my eyes up to to the level of, of these sort of problems in in our community. And yeah, we eventually uh, we eventually charged Danny. We, we arrested him on his way to training one morning and, and charged him very serious drug supply offences. And there was about eight all up that hit the dock with it. Two eventually got acquitted, but all the rest of them got found guilty. And Danny and his brother went to jail for periods of time with that one as well. In a one-team town like uh, like Newcastle, uh, the first-grade footballers are looked up at, you know, as almost gods in the eyes of some and the school kids and everything else. So this is a massive, this is a massive takedown of one of those uh, of one of those guys. And there was that disturbing link, and you touched on it before between illicit drugs, you know, professional athletes and organised crime, and how organised criminals w- would see these athletes as a doorway and opening into this because, you know, they're well-known, they're almost celebrity status, but they're earning good coin too as, as young blokes. And I think also you mentioned how at the time it was almost, you know, confrontingly easy for these guys to get hold of, um, you know, HGH or human growth hormone, which I think was found under warrant at one of the addresses and, um, and how, you know, the, this was all at the time, possibly still now, quite undetectable and it was quite widespread in its use. And you turn the key on somebody like that, there must have been a fair few first grade footballers feeling a little bit nervous, mate, about getting a knock on the door, I guess. <laughs> yes, there was. Well, there was a lot of knocks on the door. It was pretty disappointing, to be quite honest, to, to see the, the sheer level of illicit drug use at that level of the sport. And um, the number of people that fell into our crosshairs as far as people we wanted to uh, person of interest for us um was like a, a large proportion of their playing group and look i think it's disappointing also and i i hope ch- things have changed i mean this is going back to 2009 and i hope things have changed to some degree and, and there's a lot more accountability but back then it was absolutely none it was there was re- very little oversight it's one of those things where, where if 
if me or someone someone else, any general member of the public, walked in to a pub and saw an, a top level organised crime figure, a drug dealer, if they walked up and asked them to buy like one ecstasy tablet, they'd probably get knocked out. But if you're a, a celebrity footballer, all of a sudden, oh yeah, I'll look after you because, you know, like you said, these footballers are cashed up. They're surrounded by cashed up friends. And they've got all this knowledge too. I mean, this is where it becomes an issue, I think, and, and not that this came up in our investigation, but the way I look at it is there's gambling and all sorts of things associated with professional sports these days. And once you're compromised, even just by, you know, getting involved with these people, like it's not long before they start tapping on your shoulder and asking you for a bit of information and things like that. So it might sound pretty innocuous that these guys are going out and buying buying cocaine and ecstasy and stuff for their personal use and but it's actually, um, it's not because in, in doing so, they're really compromising themselves and the sport itself as well. They're compromising their whole profession. So yeah, it was a real education for me in that space. And you would hope things have changed, but you know, I, I watch the news just like everybody else. And every single time there's another drug detection or another drama with, with these players, it's just not NRL either. I don't want to sound like I'm I bashing NRL. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a keen Knights supporter, um, but some of the administrators of these these organisations and really need to take some responsibility with it. So, so even the, the performance and enhancing drug stuff you, you talked about, I mean, even that, you know, I, I think a big part of that, well, we had so much evidence on, on one particular person of interest for us um, who was dealing performance-enhancing drugs and there was so much evidence there for it on our telephones. But back then, and I don't know if things have changed now, but there's certain criteria for what evidence you can actually use from telephone intercepts under the Act. And one of the criteria was that the actual offence you're investigating, you could only use that evidence to support that that crime if that crime carried at least three years in jail. And back then, steroid dealing only carried two. So it sort of showed how apathetic everyone was to the whole problem because you don't have, even have adequate legislation to sort of investigate and prosecute it. Yeah, yeah. Now, 2009, this is six years on from, um, you know, we were chatting earlier about uh, 2003, where through your own admission, uh, Craig, things things were coming a little bit unraveled for you, you know, with regards to the situations that you'd been in and how, you know, with all that, with the gang and the, that awful homicide scene, and it was all starting to mount up. This is, um, you know, five or six years down the track. Where are you at now? Where's that mental health? Where's that sitting now? 2009. Oh, mate, look, I, I was, um, I spent that whole time, it, basically it was a, a never ending venture to try and make myself tougher because I knew I was sort of unraveling and, and the way I dealt with that was just try toughen up more, toughen up more. And, you know, I was boxing and I was doing heaps of stuff on the side and, and it, it was, uh, I was super fit at that time too. I really got myself back into shape and I was pretty formidable sort of, sort of bloke, but I was really struggling. I, sleep was a big issue for me I, from, from the time of that bikey attack and, and the murder for the next eight or nine years, I lived on somewhere between two and five hours sleep a night. Like, and, and that they were on good nights. Five hours sleep was a good night. I was just burning myself out. It was, and, and then going to work and plugging myself into the adrenaline socket of the work I was doing. I think a lot of the stuff I was dealing with in my in my pro, I literally thought I was going crazy. Some of the things that would go through my head, even sitting at traffic lights on the way to work, I just think, God, what's the matter with me? Even thinking about things like that, no, normal people don't think like that. And I was losing it, but it was, um, but I was just trying to stay ahead of it by just 
you know, a couple of coping strategies. Obviously, the drinking was one, but um, but my work, I've just buried myself in the work and I just tried to outrun it. So every time I knocked over a job like Danny's, you know, I'd be looking for another one. So it would, and the next one would need to be bigger again. And, you know, I was putting myself under a massive load of stress and, and but that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be plugged in, get that adrenaline hit from, from all the stress and, and, and all the hard work demands and the risk as well putting myself into way too many risky situations that I didn't need to put myself in, just like in dangerous situations, just because I was so reckless to my own welfare, I didn't care. I wanted that danger, I wanted the adrenaline, and I wanted the excitement because it sort of stimulated me and kept me going. Toward the end of your uh, time in the job, you're involved in a um, an operation which I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is you said probably the biggest operation that you had involvement. In. It was ran for about 18 months. This was I think must have started around 2010. They're about concluded around 2012. Now, this was a, an 18 month investigation into gang activity in that, and we're back in that sort of that that Clarence Coffs Harbour command and around there, half a dozen motorcycle gangs um, in the area. Which, for what is Goodness me! A lot of folks listening in here would not associate, you know, Coffs Harbour and areas around there as being havens for sort of motorcycle you know, clubs activity. There was one gang that that stood head and shoulders above the others with regards to um, creating the most serious problem, which was the Lone Wolf Gang. And I'm, I think it was this gang that became the focus of this ongoing investigation that you ran, that you were involved in. And I think you were quoted as saying it. You became quite almost totally consumed with this and it's the nature of that sort of work and basically on call, you know, 24-7, it must have uh, continued that massive effect it was having on you mentally, home life and everything else. And um, can you just give us an insight to that and, you know, listening to all these listening devices and, and, and almost immersing yourself into these gang activities? Yeah, at that point, I'd finish at TAG. So I worked my five years running that office and doing all those sort of jobs and and I, I just had an opportunity to go back to the normal detective's office and, and lead investigations rather than running it. And I thought it'd be a good chance to take my foot off the pedal and start looking after myself. But it was like, it, you know, trouble just finds me. And 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 I went back to to that sort of work. And it wasn't long. It was only a couple of months later. I had another murder up at I. Lucas. I was back into that. And then, you know, we had this, um, it was one of those armed robberies that you could sort of look at, do a few peripheral you know, investigations into it and then probably say, we're, ne- we're never going to solve this one and, and just put it in a file. But what had happened was um, a cash and transit security guard was picking up cash from a McDonald's and it was a, a lot of cash. He ended up getting robbed and I looked at the CCTV footage and these guys were in balaclavas, and, and, but they were also wearing multiple layers of, you could tell, like tracksuits and stuff. In the middle of summer in Coffs Arbor, it's really hot and humid. So they were trying to cover their physiques and just, I don't know, watch the footage and you get to know the people that in, in your area and the way they walk and talk and the way they associate. There was just something about it that, that looked very similar to a couple of Lone Wolf gang members that we had that were pretty red hot. And um, we started investigating them over this armed robbery and where that led, it just led into a whole world of trouble for everybody, for them, for me, for everyone. But the more we dug into the armed robbery, like we polished off informants and we went out there and dug up a heap of information. Like bread and butter for me as a detective was um, was informants. Any detective worth their salt 
should have a good network of criminal informants. And so I tapped into mine and really started to drill down on it. And the more we looked into it, the more we saw that the biker gang issue we had with the Lone Wolves was something we couldn't ignore. And and you were talking before about the country towns, you wouldn't expect it, but, you know, Coffs Harbour and in Grafton, our command, we had six biker gangs in our one command. I don't know anywhere else in Australia that's got that many in one patch. And it was mainly because of the geographics, you know, you're halfway between Sydney and, and Brisbane and the Gold Coast and on a major um, highway. So so logistically, it's a great spot for, you know, especially when you're transporting drugs and people and stuff. And you might hear a crime waves in your command, but that's the stuff that's reported. You know, sometimes you might uncover another under the table crime wave that you don't know about. Things like home invasions on drug dealers and things that just don't get in, get reported for obvious reasons. And Anyway, these guys, it, it appeared to us they were on a recruitment drive and they were just getting bigger. They were the dominant gang in our command. They, they really were um, quite dangerous and quite powerful. And, you know, luckily, in, in some ways, we, uh, we there'd just been a review of, of staffing numbers across the state for detectives. Most commands, if they were lucky, they would have got maybe one, two extra spots. Based on a review of our crime stats, we got 10 10 extra in one go and uh so we that sort of shows what sort of how under the pump we would been for a long time and it, all these beautiful planets aligning at the same time it was um so the bikies had kicked off we'd started this investigation and we got all these new troops and then i went to my commander and i said mate we've got an opportunity here we got a full deck of, of troops this is an opportunity for me to take a couple of boys offline and and we work on these guys and work up a really big job where we work it up with a view of shutting down the whole bikey gang, not just picking out two or three like we normally do and settling it down. This time, like, let's have a big picture view of this and 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 go for the whole lot. So the plan was, and, and to to my commander's credit, you know, I've, I've bagged out one earlier um, about a lack of action. Well, the commanders had at this point in time, they didn't like bikies either, and and it took a they took a lot of risk in in authorizing this 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 investigation, but they let us go and. They gave us 18 months, handpicked two people I wanted to work on it with me and basically let us off the leash to get into it. So we got all these phones tapped. I, I can't remember how many there were now. It was over over half a dozen, maybe closer to, to a dozen phones tapped. And so we're listening into all their criminal conversations through, through phone taps. And, and um, But there's a lot of work in that between three blokes. It was hundreds of thousands of messages and, and phone calls to process, analyze and work our way through. And then we also got listening devices into an apartment and into a car of one of these bikies as well. And that took a lot of manpower, you know, even sitting there and, and, and monitoring those as well. And eventually we got undercover operatives involved in it, buying drugs off of some of these bikey gang members and, and we we're doing raids. It was pretty full on 18 months of investigation into that. There was a lot of risk in it as well. While we're running this job, two people, while we're running this job, in, in the first couple of months we're running it, were so badly attacked that they ended up on Westpac helicopter flights for life-threatening injuries and didn't we didn't expect them to live, but both of them did. And both of those attacks were committed by our targets and uh, and we knew that. We didn't have the level of evidence we needed to, to lock them up, but based on all their phone calls and everything, we knew who, who did it. And um, so then we had the balancing act, like I did with that homicide I was telling you about earlier, about how, how long can we let these guys run because if someone, while we're running this job, if someone gets killed, how do we explain that? And and what professional risk are we taking here? And this is where these sort of investigations, you don't see much in regional areas, it's just we have the people to do it. 
plan was instead of just racing out every time we got a brief enough evidence to lock someone up, instead of just racing out and doing it, because that would just put the balloon up and, and everything would fall apart. Our plan was to, as we accrued evidence against individuals, we just file them. We just put them in the cupboard and we'll save them up for the day we're ready to wind it all up so that we could just go out there and, and wrap them all up in one big net and take them out of play to cause maximum disruption. And that was a plan. But every every now and then you've got these serious offences happening and you just think, you know, how long can we let this go? Because these guys, some of these guys are unhinged and can, can if something happens, we're in big trouble. So it was, it was about like identifying risk, a lot of risk management, um, putting controls in place to try to manage those targets while they were, you know, some of them would go on four-day drug you know, binges and just be completely out of control. But, you know, we we did all that. There was a lot of pressure, but we got there in the end. And and then we got, you know, by the time we, we finished that job, we had so much evidence on all these bikey gang members. I remember brought in 100 cops from all over the place, Sydney and, and everywhere, Raptor squad tactical guys we had drug dogs firearms dogs all the detectives as well 100 100 cops and um and i still remember like that we did the briefing that morning out at the airport and we're out the the rural fire service there at the airport and pre-dawn and i still remember that morning when when it was my turn it was a couple of briefings done and then as a leader in the investigation it was my job to come in and wind it all up and inspire everyone to get out there and, and have a crack and I still remember standing up at the podium there and like every other time I, I would be excited by that. I just loved it. I loved getting up there and being the leader and, and, and driving and, and getting everyone motivated. But that, they wouldn't have noticed it. Um, but I was that day, I was so flat. I could not find anything positive in what we we're about to do. And so I really had to bring a lot of energy to try to fake it through it because that whole job to that point had completely burnt me out and I had nothing left in the tank. But I still remember just before I got into my police car to go out and do my particular raid. We had 13 raids we had to do that morning, all simultaneously, all by clockwork, all pre-dawn. Um, I still, before I got in the, into the car, I looked across and I saw this convoy of police cars and trucks and vans heading out over the paddocks and the airfields, heading towards danger for my job. And... You know, there's something struck me about that. I just felt so incredibly proud of who I was that day. Um, you know, a detective sergeant leading, you know, 100 cops out towards it to, to go and shut down all these bikies. And, and it was just a profound moment. And and look, it was ended up being one of the most successful organised crime jobs ever run in regional New South Wales. You don't get those opportunities very often. And it was definitely one of the most successful jobs I've ever run. And it was definitely the biggest job in my career. But as it turned out, it ended up being the last as well because, you know, talking about how flat I was and burnt out at that point, well, for the next four or five weeks, like I just went downhill real fast and, and in the end I had a big breakdown and that was the end of me. I mean, there's that terribly cruel irony, isn't it, Craig, that, you, you, you know, I can just picture what you're saying that you're standing there as those hundred cops are, are making their way towards, like you say, walking into danger, which, which, you know, without trying to sound all melodramatic to what coppers do on a daily basis. And they're going there as a culmination of 18 months of bloody hard grinding work for yourself and your couple of offsiders there and that feeling of pride and everything else. But then eating away at you in the background is that sense that there's something not quite right here. There's something not quite right with how I'm feeling. And, uh, Am I right in saying you're you're in the kitchen at home and you just literally had a, I mean, I yeah. I don't want to be melodramatic, but you, you had just an absolute total mental and physical breakdown collapse in, in in front of your wife. Is it is that how it was? Yeah, spot on. It was uh, it was 
like basically from from the day we wound that job up, every day I, I just went further downhill. I was going, I was spiraling so um, out of control, pretty much into a massive pit of depression. Um, and but I didn't really understand it. Still, I just kept trying to push through. You know, still had all these bike. We 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 had to do mop up operations, getting getting our outstanding offenders that we had to get for that job, and going to work every day, just trying to push through. And it got to the end where. I wasn't sleeping at all and I was really, really unwell and um, and I thought, mate, now you definitely need to go and get some help. So this time I reached out EAP and they put me in touch with someone who was really good and as much as I, I knew what she was saying to me about her assessments of me were right, I was still having trouble like even accepting it and I remember, yeah, I went home from, from one of those appointments one night and I used to do most of the cooking at home and I was cooking. I was just cutting up veggies at the at the counter, chatting away to my wife. Normally, one minute, telling her about my appointment with that psychologist, and and the next, all I remember is just completely collapse over the bench, bawling my eyes out, and I mean, crying so hard I couldn't breathe from it. It was just unbelievable that the, the level of it, and I just couldn't stop. It was just ongoing, relentless, and I was so embarrassed too um, for for my wife to see me like that. And I got put to bed in that condition that night, missed dinner the whole lot. Um, Next day, uh, way too busted to go to work, couldn't face it. So I called up sick for the first time, um, rang the shift supervisor, not even my detective's office. I just I called the uniform blokes and said, can't come in, went off sick with the flu. So I still, I did, it was a mental breakdown, um, but, but, I, but I couldn't declare it, you know. And, and then the next day I went off sick with the flu again. And, um, and, and I talk about this a lot in, in all workplaces these days, but particularly the cops, like sometimes it's the little things are a bit out of character for people as you know them that need you to switch on to. And my direct line supervisor, he was a detective senior sergeant, Peter O'Reilly, great bloke, and he was a really good mate of mine as well. And he knew, Craig Sample, if, he, if he's dying of pneumonia, he'd be at his desk. And he's just caught off sick with a flu twice in a row, and I haven't heard from him. You know, he just knew there was something not right. So instead of just like, picking up the phone and calling me because I would have easily blown him off with that, um, he made the effort to come and see me and we went out for a coffee and, and there was no denying it because he could see it written all over me. So he talked me into going to the doctors and getting some time off. I was obviously very reluctant to do it. I didn't want to leave all my workmates with all the work that we had. and um, But I eventually did and that was the end. That was the end of my career. I'd never stepped foot back in a police station again as an operational detective. I was done. Um, so basically what happened was I'd, I'd, I'd been battling one pretty serious mental illness for, for eight or nine years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's questionable how well I was, I was doing it, but I was, but I was getting through and I, and I was still achieving big things. But, you know, a combination of all the stress that I'd been putting myself under, heaps of alcohol use and the chronic lack of sleep, you know, basically was a perfect storm, burnt me out. And, um, and now I had major depressive disorder as well. And that was the one that really brought me to my knees. So, there was a long, there was a long period of time that, that I was in in a in a bad way. Um, so I was medically retired only nine months after finishing that bikey job, which was incredibly quick. Um, not many it usually drags out for a couple of years that sort of thing. But then I was sent off to a trauma clinic at Westmead Hospital. Three months of really intensive treatment there. I was on antidepressants, antipsychotics, and heaps of other medications. And basically, I spent the next three years in a world of hurt, really high anxiety with PTSD, and then I crash and burn into these horrible pits of depression for long periods of time and mate look I, I suppose what happened there was I, I had a battle with suicide for that whole three years as well um which was really tough um and then 
my marriage ended up breaking down and, and then I attempted to take my life, end up in a hospital emergency ward. But obviously I'm pretty lucky because I got a second chance and I took it and um, and I'm, I'm going great guns these days. But, you know, message for cops and that are, might be listening now and their families is, uh, um, you know, for me, I remember when I was at the trauma clinic, I said to, um, I said to the doctor who did the two days of assessments with me, I said, Lucy, if I had actually put my hand up eight or nine years ago when I first started having nightmares, would have really made a difference. And I was, I was, I was hoping she'd say no, but she said, mate, we could have probably had this sorted out for about five sessions. Um, one of the barriers for me not putting my hand up all the way back then was I feared losing my career if I did, but I ended up losing my career because I didn't. I mean, a real big message for me, and it's not just cops, it's anybody battling mental health problems these days is that you, you, you can't outrun it. The faster you run, the further you run, the harder you get pulled down in the end. When you're struggling, you've got to turn around, face it, get it dealt with because the earlier you get the help, the better the outcomes. And so, you know, there's a story of consequence that I share all over Australia these days because I really want to increase that really low levels of help seeking that we still have, not just in emergency services, but in the wider community as well. You know, I've, I've learned the hard way and I was lucky to survive it. So I hope other people don't make the same mistakes as me and, and, um, and try to push through. Craig, you, goodness me! Uh, just again, thanks so much. It's uh, it's there's a lot of people listening to this who will glean so much benefit for themselves, but also people listening to what you're saying will recognise possibly some of these traits in their loved ones. You know, their their husbands, their wives, their sons, daughters, dads. Um, as blokes, one thing we, and particularly in that policing environment, which is. You know, you, you went through at a time, as did I, where you didn't show weakness, you didn't put your hand up for help, um, you just got on the drink, and the worse the work that you did, the more you drunk, and the more bravado, and you talk about stuff with your mates, but oftentimes not at a level that it needed to be spoken about, because we weren't in that generation, were we, Craig, where it was, you know, mate, are you okay, and I mean, you're... You know, your, your mate O'Reilly, I think Radar was his name, for obvious reasons, who came around to see you. Probably a man ahead of his time in some regards because um, we don't quite know, do we, how to put our hand up. And when we do, we're frightened that it's going to show a side of us that we don't want people to see. And, and the coppers particularly, like other emergency services, the armed forces, um, the perception is that you don't show that weakness. But the irony is, of course... Had you put your hand up earlier, uh, you'd, you'd probably still be in the job today if, if you chose to be. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, it really comes down to culture. I mean, the culture of the cops that we joined back then was that you had to be tough enough to take everything. And, uh, and so that sort of meant that if you failed in that, like if you weren't able to take it, then you'd failed in that endeavor. Um, so yeah, it was definitely not encouraged to show weakness. And, and you know, we're starting to change attitudes a lot with that a little bit in the wider community. I, I notice a lot of men's support groups popping up all over the place now, um, you know, catching up on Wednesday mornings for a coffee and then going for a swim in the surf and having a chat about things that are going on in their lives. And I think that's so cool to see. Um, there's a lot more um, openness to that sort of thing these days. Craig, you stepped away from the job, medically retired 2013, and um, it was a tough few years. And then you, you started to make your way back on that road to recovery. You got involved in um, getting up in front of school kids and, and talking to them about you know mental health, about your own story. And then that progressed further to, I think, 2017, starting your own business and, and delivering mental health training to workplaces. Um, 
you've also, uh, in your spare time, mate, you've uh, you've penned a book recently published, uh, which which I think folks listening into this who have a, a real interest in what you've got to say would um, would find that a great read. I, I've read quite a number of excerpts as part of my preparation for this chat, and uh, the book's called The Cop Who Fell to Earth, recently published here in Australia, and um, and let's hope uh, that, along with all the other work that you're doing, can continue to help folks who may find themselves in a similar spot to what you did. I hope a lot of people enjoy it. I mean, those who are true crime buffs are going to love the first 70% of it because there's obviously the stuff we've been talking about like really drilled down and broken down into – it's basically written like a novel. I've, I wanted people to feel like they're actually in the passenger seat of a police car with me and, and, and you know, following through uh, right at the front end. But then there's the mental health stuff at the end too, which I think is really important. And it's not just for other cops and, and uh, that might benefit from it. It's also their families who can then get an understanding because like we said, we don't talk about it a lot at home. So, you know, hopefully I can be a voice for, for a lot of those emergency services personnel out there, not just police, but ambos and fireys and soldiers. Look, I just hope it creates a bit of understanding out there as well for, the, for those guys and, and make their lives a bit easier. I just wanted to say, I guess in conclusion, I just want to thank you not only for the the 25 years of service to the good people of, uh, of New South Wales, but uh, as much to Craig for the work that you're now doing and the courage you're showing to get out there and educate and destigmatise issues around, around mental health, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, it takes a big man to go out there and do that, and, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you come on board for a bit of a chat. Thanks for your time. Brent, that was that were very, very kind words, mate. I really appreciate it. So, um, look, thank you so much for having me on and um, also giving me a platform to, to share some of those messages even further, mate. So, um, thanks again. It was a really good experience. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. Link Kelly.